Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, in the lectionary readings, both this week and next week, are two very familiar stories if you have been in or around the church for any period of time. Uh, This week, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Next week, uh, Lori will actually be preaching for the first time at All Souls, uh, and she'll be preaching the story of Mary and Martha uh, and Jesus in their home when Mary is seated at the feet of Jesus. But there's always a little bit of danger, right, in stories that become familiar to us. Uh, We either begin to zone out because we think we've uh, heard it in every way and thought about it from every different angle, Or even if something new begins to come up, there becomes this sort of a defense mechanism as a way of holding Jesus at arm's length. Because surely we've heard this all before. And so as we enter into this story, I want to remind us why Jesus told parables. Uh, A parable is simply a story. It literally means, the word parable literally means to throw one thing down next to another. And so what Jesus often almost always does is he takes a difficult truth and he throws it down next to something that would be familiar to those who are hearing these stories. But why is it that Jesus tells parables? Well, what I would argue is that Jesus tells parables because of what he says in John 17, 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know God, the only true God, and Jesus who the Father has sent. Jesus came to proclaim the availability of eternal life, of the good life. Not just, right, most of the time when we hear eternal life, we think unending life in a place called heaven. And there's a aspect to that, but if we boil it down to it, then Jesus doesn't have much to say about our lived experience. Jesus has little to say about how we live our lives, let alone our experience of this world and of this life. Jesus came proclaiming the availability of eternal life, not just unending life in heaven, but an actual interactive, conversational, cooperating friendship with God here and now, where we are, as we are, when we are. And so Jesus comes telling stories. And I think it's in part because Jesus knew that many of us would be fooled into thinking that we know how the good life works. So the parables are about correcting the general assumptions and practices that were thought to govern the situations at hand. For example, in the parable that Jesus tells of the young rich ruler in Mark chapter 10, in that day, maybe it sounds familiar, there's a belief that if you're rich, you have been blessed by God. That to contain riches and to live a life of ease must mean you're doing something right and God blesses you. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and rather than coming out and going, you bunch of filthy heathens, how could you think that? Let's be honest, some of us have heard that sermon. But it wasn't from Jesus. Jesus comes telling stories. The governing system at the time was if you're rich, you're blessed. 
But Jesus shows up on the scene and the correction is it's actually harder for the rich to place themselves under God's rule, a camel entering through the eye of a needle. But rather, blessed are the poor, blessed are the marginalized, the wounded. And the reality is every single one of us, it's easy to sort of look back and go, how could you think that rich, a full bank account, enter equals blessing? And it's easy sort of have that chronological snobbery where we look back and go, how could they think that? And yet every single one of us are governed by an operating system, a way of seeing and understanding the world, a way of imagining the good life. It's been shaped by our family of origin, our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents, the view and the stories they told about the good life, the stories they didn't tell about what the good life is, what the bad life is. As one of my mentors likes to say, Jesus is in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. We're also shaped by the cultures we grew up in. For us, it's many of us in this room, it's Western America. We've been deeply formed by the cultural liturgies that have shaped us more than we know. Following Jesus is not a life we get to live in a vacuum free of powerful influences. It's a contested path of obedience against many of the dominant cultural narratives of our time. The directional influence of our world and often our own hearts are not postured toward being like Jesus. Why Evan spoke at the beginning of needing to enter into this space for Jesus to reorient us and to redirect us toward the actual good life. And we may not consciously think about being formed by our surroundings, but the cultural liturgies of the world disconnected from God are incredibly strong. Many voices in our world give us more than permission to obsess it's about ourselves. In fact, they make it an expected way of life. And this is why Jesus comes and offers us, even now, a counterformation. Life as a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus, in the midst of a world full of liturgies telling us that all our entire lives are about us, that preach to us the myth of redemptive violence that tell us that the the way to a good life is a life free of pain, free of difficulty, free of difficult people. Listen, y'all, I love, I love a good mute button on Instagram. Like someone in the room who's a friend of mine who I follow was like, reminded everybody this week, I'm not gonna call them out, but I was thankful for the reminder because I was like, oh yeah, there's a few people I've been meaning to mute. but it's hard to do that in real life. But this counterformation will require new liturgies and habit forming, shared rhythms that help us toward the greater end of walking with Jesus and seeing his kingdom come in our lives and in the world. And so for those of us who have given our yes to Jesus, we are called not just to change at the level of our ideas so that we can think Christian thoughts. Too often, following Jesus has been boiled down to just believing the right things. If you can just have this correct doctrine, the right confessional statement, hold on to the right creeds and be able to explain the creeds in the right way, 
then you will be good. And yet it's so interesting that when Jesus leaves and he's going up to heaven, he doesn't look at his friends and goes, and here's a theology book. Theology is important. I'll talk with you about it all day. The person who just chuckled is a professional theologian. Theology is important. Believing the right things is important, but too often that is where we stop. But rather, what Jesus is inviting us to is to change at the level of our daily habits, of our outward actions of loving obedience, which for many of us will require, myself included, an intentional process of counterformation, which begins with where I am, my current habits which have been rooted in certain assumptions I've made about how the world works. That's why Jesus so often speaks about the heart. Most of the time, right, we hear the heart, what do we think? Feelings. What Jesus is talking about is the governing operating system of our lives. He's saying you are the kind of people that do what you do. I would love to let myself off on a technicality. The angry outburst came from the fact that I only got four hours of sleep and I've had a stressful day. When the truth is, is I am the kind of person that has angry outbursts. Not as a way of sort of, you know, I put that on my resume. But rather naming reality so that I can invite Holy Spirit in to begin to do a work that little by little, my innermost being, where Jesus resides, begins to look more and more like the one who is there. That's why Jesus tells parables. And with that intro, the parable of the Good Samaritan. <laughs> A few movements in this passage this morning. The first is the religious leader's question. The religious leader is testing Jesus' doctrinal correctness. He's saying, hey, where's the theology book? Where's the doctrinal statement on the website, Jesus? I want to see what you believe about this, 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 and this. And initially, he agrees with what Jesus is saying about, all right, loving God, loving neighbor, but then something begins to shift, as it often does with Jesus. And so Jesus, as he does, responds with a question. Jesus asked an insane amount of questions. And after asking this question, the religious leader feels trapped, and he does what you and I do every single time we feel trapped. He tries to justify himself. And so he asked the question, trying to get off on a technicality, well, who is my neighbor? And don't hear that as like a, a philosopher. Who is my neighbor? He's going, who, who is my neighbor? Anyway. Which brings us to the second movement that Jesus tells a story. A story of a traveler who falls into the hands of robbers and is left for dead. And he's passed by a priest, a pastor, who crosses to the other side. He's passed by a Levite. A deacon. And Jesus is beginning to push on attention here. He's speaking to a religious leader, about religious leaders, but also about a bigger system that he's come to subvert. Their understanding of the governing system of God, of the kingdom of God, of the good life left little room no matter what they said, by, Jesus said, by their fruits, you will know them. 
The current operating system left little room to care for those on the margins, left little room to move toward those in need. And this, my friends, is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. In fact, with the three main characters in this story, Jesus isn't talking about outward moralism. This isn't a story about just do good. Too often it gets boiled down to that. Jesus is talking about here being the kind of person that moves toward those in pain. The priest and the Levite are not those kind of people. And the character that shows up as that kind of person is really gonna push some buttons to those who are hearing. Which brings us to the third movement, the Good Samaritan. It's actually not called that anywhere in the story. That one's free. But Jesus, who's a master storyteller, slips the Samaritan in as a character at the end before their minds can be closed off. Samaritans and Jews have been for a very long time at enmity with one another. The hatred for the Samaritans runs incredibly deep. Most often time referred to as half-breeds, as less than human. Most Jewish people in the day would actually go incredibly out of their way in order to travel around the area of Samaria, which is why it was so scandalous for Jesus to go right in. And of all the people to pass by, the Samaritan doesn't. The Samaritan stops and helps. And actually, in many ways, gives us a pattern for helping. But again, the danger here is we just have a checklist for what it means to help those in need. Because what Jesus is after is for us to become the kind of people that the instinctual move when we see someone in need is first to actually see them. To be moved by compassion and empathy. The Samaritan is the kind of person who is moved toward proximity when he sees a need. But not just seeing, right? We live in a day when we probably see more people in need than any generation in the past because we have it all right here. And it could be so easy that we become so overwhelmed by the need of the world that we are just moved toward maybe just a repost is how I care. And yes, there is, there is space for amplifying voices of those on the margins. There is space for posting news stories as a way of, of helping our friends re-educate themselves about the realities of people who, especially if you look anything like me, don't share our same stories. but oftentimes it stops there when Jesus' invitation to us because this is who Jesus was. Jesus was the kind of person that when he saw someone in need, he moved toward it and it was moved to action. And that's the kind of person the Samaritan is. And not just temporary care, but long-term care that costs the Samaritan dearly. And in this, the Samaritan in the story embodies the answer of who is my neighbor. And again, Jesus is pushing on buttons because to the question of who is my neighbor, Jesus goes, <laughs> okay, buggle up because it's everyone. Which to us sounds, for many of us, amazing. 
Let's love everybody. But really? Because I have people on my other list. I have people on my other list, and you probably do too. Should we see? This will be fun. For some of you in the room, for some of you in the room, it's people who think we should make America great again. For some of you in the room, it's someone who wears a t-shirt that says Black Lives Matter. For some of you in the room, it's people who grew up in the South. And if you're from the South like me, it's everyone who didn't. (laughs) It's the neighbor whose dog won't shut up. It's the coworker who just comes across as overly needy and anxious. It's the partner, the spouse, who just won't seem to listen. Won't do what you want them to do. It's the child that you don't know what to do with. The parent you're estranged from. And Jesus in this story is correcting the assumption of who is it that can inherit the good life, the eternal life? And his answer to this is anyone who says yes to the radical availability of God's kingdom and who sets about intentionally rearranging their lives to be formed by God little by little into the kind of person whose inner world is increasingly resembling the inner being of Christ himself. It's the reason why, friends, friendship with God is beautiful and dangerous. Because inevitably, God, who is the God who moves toward those we would not expect. Because let's be honest, I'll speak for myself, I won't speak for you. There are people in my life who did not expect, who probably still don't expect that God would move toward me. And there are people in my life that I have to fight to believe, help my unbelief, that God would move toward them. The religious leader and many others of those listening thought, thought they knew who was out and who was in when it came to God and God's kingdom. That they could draw lines and boundaries better than God. Jesus is correcting the assumption of who is my neighbor, of who inherits the good life. But he's also correcting the assumption of how we inherit eternal life life now and forever with God, because it's about more than simply loving our neighbor, right? Some of us, myself included, have simply traded an oppressive legalism for a more palatable form. (laughs) Like, oh, I didn't like those rules, but I like these. Feel good. So I'll close with what I think the invitation is to me, maybe to you this morning, and it is an invitation to proximity. Proximity to Jesus, the only way in which Jesus can actually correct the assumptions we have about the good life and the way life works is if we're in proximity to him, the one who is gentle and lowly of heart, who invites us to come and to rest, and as part of that rest, to be reformed, to be restoried. But inevitably, proximity to Jesus will lead you to proximity 
with those in need and those on the margins because, friends, that's where Jesus is. And as we go with him into those spaces of need, those are the spaces where little by little we begin to take on the family likeness of the one whose instinctual heart is to move toward those in need, to move toward those who the rest of the world has written off and moves toward and goes, no, good, beautiful, good, beautiful. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.